Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, whether you have a printed copy, as I strongly encourage you to bring, or an app on your phone, I'd like to ask you to join me as we complete a sermon series this morning we've entitled Managing Marriage by looking at the last few verses of the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It is an incredible privilege of mine to stand just backstage in preparation to preach and listen to you worship the Lord so passionately and so vibrantly. And I hope and pray that your worship does not end. I hope your mood, your focus does not change. If you think about it this way, I always think about it this way. What you've been doing is giving. You've been giving your praise to the Lord. Now, he blesses you in your worship. Uh, I was recently listening to someone talking about how worship and gratitude and anxiety have trouble coexisting. And so when we are anxious and we choose to worship and we are grateful, it often drowns out our anxiousness. It does not eliminate our problems. It just resets our focus. You've been giving your worship to the Lord. Now, you continue to worship by receiving. Not receiving wisdom from me. I'm, I'm like you. I'm still trying to figure life out. But receiving wisdom from his word. We've been in the book of 1 Corinthians for several months now. And this is the conclusion of this sermon series. I'm excited to begin chapter 8 with you next week in a new series called Freely Bound. And we're going to talk about how to balance the freedom we have in Christ with being bound to the gospel that we know allows us to give up things so that others may hear it, and we'll explore and explain those implications to our life. But we come this morning to this final installment about managing marriage. Now, I've joked with you lightheartedly that usually when we think about the word marriage, we don't think about the word manage. But to be honest, the word manage in the English language means to treat with care in order to achieve one's purpose. If you care about anything you manage it. Any businessman or woman in the room knows that if you want your business to be profitable, even during difficult times, it must be managed closely. And therefore, if marriage is valuable and management is what we do to that which is valuable, then we need to understand how to manage marriage. What are the biblical truths in and around the subject of marriage? And this may be one of the most unique passages about marriage because primarily this morning we're going to talk to those from God's Word who are considering marriage. In fact, I'd call this sermon the rules of engagement. The rules of engagement. Now, when you think about marriage by the numbers, it's a pretty significant part of our culture. Here's just four numbers for you. 4,000 bucks, 27,100 bucks, 2.6 million, that's not a dollar sign, and 57.9 billion dollars. Can you imagine 57, if you can imagine 57.9 billion dollars, I need to see you after the service. I want to talk to you about our building fund. I can't even imagine 57.9 billion. So what are those numbers? Well, here they are. $4,000 is the average cost of an engagement ring in our nation. $4,000. Kind of makes me sad that Laurel's going to hear this in the second service. 
I was so broke. I can assure you, it didn't cost $4,000. I was having a conversation with a young man the other day talking about the wisdom of cubic zirconium. It didn't go very well. $27,100 is the average cost of a ceremony in the United States. That did not surprise me. I actually thought that number was low. $27,100. It did remind me to start charging more when I do a wedding. 2.6 million. That's how many weddings will occur statistically on average in 2022. So, so we're not anti-wedding in our culture. The wedding industry of the United States has a sum total worth of $57.9 billion annually. Now, now you just think about this. Your great-grandparents have one picture in either the courthouse or the corner of the little fellowship hall of the Baptist church down the road. He has a suit on that he didn't rent. Nobody else had a rental on, and she had a dress on that her mama made and a cake that your aunt made. That's the one picture you have. You may have a second picture of them getting in a cool-looking car back when our nation used to know how to build cars and going off for their 36-hour honeymoon to the mountains where Uncle Versi had a cab and he let them use. <laughs> and now... Now, you hire a videographer to video you proposing. Then if there's a photo shoot for the engagement, and, and you know it's staged because every one of you go. <laughs> and, then, and then there's an entire commotion to get to the point where she said yes to the dress. And then there's the pre-marriage photos. There's also the choice of the venue, which now, right now, either has to be a barn or a garden. We go in circles around that whole thing. It has to be a barn. And if you do a pasture, you steal somebody's barn door for you to open and walk through to get married. And then, and then there's the actual ceremony. Then there's the reception. Then there's the honeymoon, and then you will continually post for about two or three months of highlights of the ceremony. It is an ordeal. Now, you may say, Pastor, you shouldn't pick on those young women in your church that have just gotten married or going to get married. I remind you that I have to eat all these words. I have two daughters in my home, and when they emerge with their online degrees at 32 years old <laughs> from my house, and they marry one of the five men we've pre-selected for them to choose, then I'm sure we will go through every bit of it as well. But there is, there is, there is a note of reality amidst the comedy, and, and it is this. There is this pursuit in the church and outside the church of this fairy tale, picturesque moment. And I've just proven to you statistically the amount of money spent on the moment. And yet, there's very little time spent on the marriage. See, the marriage is what you get after the honeymoon. And it's for life. That doesn't mean that a Christian young man or a Christian young woman cannot enjoy the proposal, cannot enjoy the opportunity. Do you know what I did to propose to Laurel? 
<laughs> Here's a little free material for you. I decided to propose to Laurel on my birthday. You know, that kind of cheesy thing. Would you be the greatest birthday present of my life, you know? And so I got one of our friends, a dear friend of hers, in on it. And I said, look, and this is classic. I said, I want you to convince Laurel to throw me a surprise birthday party. But then I'll take her out to dinner before the party. When we're supposed to show up, I'll propose to her. And it will actually be a surprise engagement party. Now, after the fact, my wife pointed out, yet again, you had me do all the work. <laughs> and you got all the credit. God's called you to be a senior pastor. <laughs> and so I understand the love for the moment. But yet I recognize that the church, and especially a church that cares so much about young people, ought to put people in the best possible position, not just for the moment that is posted, but for the marriage that is permanent. And every marriage is preceded by an engagement. And so you may say, well, this is going to be a great message for young people. How is this applicable to me? I would just remind you, every one of you has a young person in your life, a son, a daughter, a grandson, a granddaughter, a niece, a nephew, who probably, statistically, will at least consider marrying one day. And when they do, they will get tons of advice, tons of counsel. There'll be all kinds of jokes. Will you prepare yourself by listening to this message to speak truth into their life, not only about their proposal, not only about their engagement, but about their singleness? So the rules of engagement is actually a military term. It means a directive issued by a military authority controlling the use and the degree of force, especially specifying circumstances and limitations for engaging in combat. Some of you remember year, years ago, Samuel L. Jackson and Tommy Lee Jones starred in a movie called Rules of Engagement. And then a little bit later in the early 2000s, there was a play on these words and there was a sitcom called Rules of Engagement, which took the military term and kind of turned it on its head and, and made fun a little bit at couples preparing for marriage. Well, if, if rules of engagement is a serious subject for the military and a comical subject for our culture, Paul says the rules of engagement that we should live by absolutely should reflect our devotion to the gospel. In fact, so much so that we need to remind ourselves that marriage often is celebrated in the church but singleness is survived. That's based on two lies. There are two lies in the church. One is you are complete in Christ when you marry. Now, marriage is a gift of God. Marriage is ordained by God. Marriage is created by God. Marriage is designed by God. It's why we believe in the biblical definition of marriage of one man and one woman. We understand that. God has gifted it. God has blessed it. It is a wonderful and joyful, uh, pleasurable experience when it is in Christ. But there is no biblical precedence that says you must be married to be complete in Christ. And yet many of our singles in our churches, especially those who are single again, maybe they've gone through a divorce or they've lost a loved one, will tell you that 
in an effort to not be intentional, we unintentionally set up marriage on the altar and we adore it and we make singleness something of an incompleteness. Well, if marriage is very serious and should be celebrated, yet singleness is a gift from God too, it means when we face marriage, we ought to face the decision very carefully. This is the context of Paul's discussion to end 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Remember, he has inherited a hornet's nest of morality. Corinth was a carnal place. And many of the Christians had not lived their adult lives as Christians. They were the first generation of Christians. They didn't have Christian parents, Christian customs, Christian traditions, Christian values. And so they had come to faith in Christ from a very lost, very immoral, very sexualized culture known as Corinth. Corinth, of course, was the place where the mythological god Aphrodite was worshipped. And being the god of procreation or the god of sensuality and sexuality, a part of worshipping this god was to participate in worship with temple prostitutes. I'll let you determine what that means in sensitivity to the little ears in the room. But this was a place like no other in the ancient world. So when people became Christians and they began to allow the gospel to invade every area of their life, obviously the gospel is supposed to invade the areas of our life related to intimacy, romantic love, and for the Christian, marriage. But also for the Christian, the thought of being married. Now, this is also one of those letters where Paul not only speaks proactively, but he speaks reactively. There are places, as we see in verse 25, where Paul is addressing a question that was asked to him. So apparently, Paul was dealing with a group of Christians, some of which were engaged. They were planning to marry, but there were some struggles in the engagement. And they send word to Paul, what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do if we had planned to get married? Now, why does this matter? If you've been with me in this series, you'll know that previous text, Paul encourages people, if you're in a marriage, stay committed to it. If you're single, stay committed to your singleness. In other words, don't be defined by your marital status, whether you be single or you be married. But if you're engaged, you find yourself in that limbo. Well, what am I supposed to do? Should I remain single and break off the engagement? Or should I go ahead and be married? And this is where we find Paul writing these words in verse 25 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, concerning the betrothed, I want to be honest with you, in the original language, the word translates from the virgins. It's a reference to those who were engaged based on their sexual inactivity. Now, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord. We've seen Paul do this before. He's saying, Jesus didn't address this. So, so what I'm about to tell you is from me, not directly from the words of Jesus. Now, listen, we believe all the word of God is inspired. So this does not mean Paul is saying, well, what I'm about to say is not true, is not inspired by the Spirit. This is Paul simply saying, what I'm about to say 
is some teaching that didn't come directly from Jesus, yet now it comes from the Spirit through me. He says in verse 25, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one by the Lord's, mer by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy, that apostolic authority. And here it comes. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Now he fleshes that out. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Paul would never teach divorce. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she's not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Now, I'm going to explain what he means there and what he doesn't mean. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. If you're considering married, getting married, if you are single, if you are currently engaged, if you ever think you're going to speak truth into someone who may face those situations, mom and dad, you will as your children age, here are some truths for you to consider. First, Paul says consider the presence of distress. The reason that he gives this command is because there are stressful situations and components of this world that absolutely will weigh more on a person if they take a spouse. Now, this is important. If you think about the reaction to passages like this within the kingdom of Christ, we know there are extremes. We know it is an extreme to forbid marriage. This is where I would be thankful and lovingly disagree with my neighbors inside of Roman Catholicism. If God had called me to preach and to pastor inside of the Roman Catholic Church, I would not have been allowed to take a wife and certainly not to father children. I do not believe that that doctrine is sound biblically. But you can take a passage like this and you can see how if you press it beyond what Paul meant, you could make the argument that it is superior in order to serve the Lord to be single. The other extreme would be that someone must be married in order to be in the center of God's will. That's unbiblical as well. So where do we live? We live between the two tensions of recognizing marriage does not make you complete in Christ. Christ makes you complete in Christ. But forced singleness does not honor the Lord if God leads you to a spouse that loves him and it makes it very evident that you are to marry this person. Now, Paul makes a reference here of present distress. Look with me what the Bible says beginning in verse 26. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Now, there are two ways you can interpret that. Some have said, well, this is generally speaking, there's always going to be distress for those who attempt to follow the Lord. You and I struggle with this because I pastor a generation that has not seen a great deal of persecution to be Christians. You realize we are unique, and I think those days are coming to an end. I believe my grandchildren 
will endure more persecution if they follow the Lord Jesus than I have. I believe days are coming where churches like ours will become the target of those. It will first come from the legal argument of our establishment as a church, and then it will escalate from there. And we know this takes place all over the world in places like today. If you and I were transformed or transferred or transported into an underground church in certain parts of China today, we would set across from brothers and sisters who will have endured persecution that would be brand new to us. If we were in an Arab, Arabic church, a Christian church in the Middle East today, they will tell you of stories of persecution that would be foreign to us. I think that there was some persecution beginning to happen in Corinth. We do know that within 10 years of Paul writing 1 Corinthians, he would begin to see the onslaught of persecution by the emperor named Nero. We know that after Paul's death, who was of course executed by Nero according to church history, that on Overall persecution of Christians happened through the second century of the emperor of the empire of Rome. We we also know that there is pretty good textual evidence that the Greek world at this point was experiencing a famine because when Paul deals with the subject of the Lord's Supper over in chapter 11, we'll get there. When he when he deals with it, he talks about how some come to church hungry, and then they use the Lord's Supper as a means to fill their stomach and not their soul. Again, when you begin to piece all these together, I think there's a pretty strong argument that it was a stressful situation in Corinth to truly follow Jesus. I was trying in my efforts as your pastor to help you connect with this. Imagine if you were a young person engaged to be married the day before Vladimir Putin wickedly and illegally invaded the nation of Ukraine and you lived on the Ukrainian border. Imagine if your village had been bombed and is non-existent. Imagine if you found yourself with your family marching to an adjacent country trying to find uh, hope and to be accepted, to be given asylum, to allow yourselves to live. I imagine that in the Ukrainian culture, there have been many weddings put on hold due to the present distress and someone saying, how can I marry this woman if I'm being called up to fight? Or how can I marry this man and take on the responsibilities of a wife when I don't even know where my parents are and now I find myself walking, riding, or hitchhiking to the next village where there's food and there's water? What is Paul saying? Paul is saying, look, when you... Consider taking a spouse. You need to stop and not become so drunk with infatuation of the moment that you discount the seriousness of what could come in your life. He, he actually, interestingly, in this passage, talks about it in view of the end times. Look what the Bible says beginning in verse 27. He says, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if betrothed woman marry, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. And then Paul thankfully tells us, this is what I mean. Brothers, the appointed time has grown very short. Now, is Paul predicting the end time of Christ? Well, Paul and the other apostles would teach what Jesus taught. 
No one should go around predicting the end time. But the biblical writers had a very interesting perspective of the end time. You see, when they thought about the ushering in of the second coming of Jesus, they believed it was so apparent and so close in the redemptive plan of God that it's impossible for a Christian to separate the major decisions of their life from the second coming. Now, it doesn't mean that a Christian shouldn't feed her children. It doesn't mean you shouldn't show up to work tomorrow. It doesn't mean you shouldn't care about your retirement or have health insurance. We've all read about Christian sects or cults that get twisted, the Word of God, and begin to give up paying their bills and move into communes. And the Bible would warn against this. But the Bible would also warn against another extreme, which is to just operate ho-hum as if we're not in the last days. Paul would say this to the Roman believers in this same idea. Besides this, you know that the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us than we first believed. He's not talking about being saved. He's talking about the culmination of salvation, the glorification of a believer through the second coming of Christ. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Paul would go on to say, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling or jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify the desires. Translation, condense it down. If you believe Jesus could come back at any time, live accordingly. If you believe that there could at any moment be the second coming, where there's no room for repentance, where there's no room for restoration, live accordingly. This is why Paul says to the church in Ephesus these words, look carefully then how you walk, not as wise, unwise, but as wise. Make the best use of the time because the days are evil. So for the young person considering marriage, this is what I would say. This is the application of this passage. Would I marry this person based on my belief that Christ could return at any point? I think there are many yeses. I think there may be many people who say, yes, I'd marry this person. Yes, I believe it is God's will for us to be together. But I also think there are many marriages, even in the church, that become co so consumed with a love affair with being married that they miss out on the kingdom perspective of saying, is this the person for my life? You have to consider that that life will be filled with joy and distress. There's also something else to consider. You, you, you must consider the potential for division. So let's, let's get our theology right here. We are all individuals. We're uniquely made. But the Bible says that when we covenant in marriage, the two become one flesh. We believe they become one flesh financially, spiritually, of course, physically. This is the joining of a man and a woman. That's why there is no Christian room for gay marriage. I don't even believe that it exists. It can't exist because marriage, as defined by God, is only one man and one woman, even down to the anatomy of how our bodies are designed. And the joining together of a man and a woman is the place in which God chooses to bless new life.
And so we have this definition of marriage which pushes us to this one word we talk about a lot, oneness, oneness, oneness. Being one with someone in marriage is not erasing your own personality, thank God. It's not erasing your own passions or your dreams, but it is saying, I no longer live, we live together. Recently, I was greeting a man uh, who is the father of one of our members who had just buried his wife of over 60 years. And I reminded him that the difficulty comes because half of him's in heaven today. When you live over 60 years with a partner, with a lover, with a friend, with a wife, you struggle to make sense of your new life because you don't know where you end and they begin. Doesn't mean you can't find hope and healing. There are many widows and widowers in this service. There'll be many more in the next service who have found their hope. They are waiting and they're restored. But heaven is a sweet place for them, not only because it is the communion with the Lord Jesus, it will be a reunion with that precious person that they have spent their life with. And even though we know our marital status will be different in heaven, it doesn't mean that it cancels out the biblical truth. You will be known as you are known. I believe that one day when I see and interact with and know and enjoy the presence of Laurel in heaven, she and I will always have the special set of memories and the special reality that we lived a life together here on this earth and that God put her into my life to transform me to being more like Christ. And I hope and pray that me being in her life helped her to follow Christ more faithfully and that through the union of our lives, God bless this world with what we hope will be six warriors for the king who do the same thing, turning many people to Jesus. Heaven will not escape, or that, those memories will not escape us from heaven. And so this oneness is significant until it's not oneness. Until you find yourself flippantly entering into a covenant with someone who's not in love with Christ, and you look up three and four and five years into this marriage, and the newness has worn off, and you are struggling because you operate with a completely different set of values than your spouse. And it's not that you don't love your spouse. And it's not that he or she doesn't love your children. But your heart aches because you want them to be as in love with the Lord as you are. Now, if you are an apostle with apostolic authority, what would you want for people? I can tell you what I want for my children. I can tell you, I promise you as a father, I would much rather my children live a life of fullness in Christ and be single than fall in love with the thought of being married and marry the wrong person. And this is why Paul says what he says beginning in verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. Guys, don't say amen when I read that passage, okay? I'm just, just telling you there. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. One commentator said it this way. Sometimes when a woman pursues marriage for the wrong reason, those kind of marriages turn Marys into Marthas. Remember Mary and Martha? Mary sat at the feet of Jesus. Martha was scurrying around trying to take care of everything. And the commentator picked up on that and was talking about this burden. Look at verse 35. I say this for your own benefit. So Paul's not condemning marriage. He's just being real. 
not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure. And here it comes. This is the key. Second phrase, verse 35. Your undivided devotion to the Lord. So if I am single, what I know by default is that I am not bound to any man or any woman that would pull me away from being bound and devoted to Christ. The moment I marry, I open up the potential for that devotion to be divided, which is why I better choose my spouse soberly, seriously, and spiritually so that I covenant, in my case, with a woman, ladies, in your case, with a man, who would never pull your devotion from the Lord. You know, this is called missionary dating. Well, preacher, I know he's not where he needs to be, but I believe God's going to let me fix him. (laughs) Now, the interesting thing is there's irony. I pastor couples who will tell you God did a work in their life. Often it's the ladies who would say, yeah, you know, he wasn't interested in the things of God when we first got married. We were young, and children came, and we got busy, but I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed, and Pastor, it just brings me so much pride to know he sits with me every Sunday at church. But you know what I've also asked and have received from those same ladies? They don't want their granddaughters to go through that. They don't want their daughters to go through that. So I... I would say to any person married to a person and your devotion is divided, this is not grounds for divorce, Paul even says. If you have a wife, don't leave them. If you have a husband, don't leave them. But for those of you in this church raising the next generation with Laurel and I, for those of you in your 20s or 30s or 40s and you may be single, divorced, widowed, maybe have never married, and you are considering the thought of marriage, then on the authority of God's word, I would say consider it very carefully and just make a commitment to yourself. I won't even enter into a romantic relationship with someone who is not equally or more so devoted to Christ than me. Now, I'll tell you, ladies and men, that thins the field out real quick, which causes you to trust the Lord as the matchmaker and not the lost social networks of this world. And so when we begin to think about the potential of division, there's a third consideration, the power of desire. There are people in Corinth who are engaged and they want to be together sexually. This is not unnatural. This is very natural. When I have this discussion with my older children, one of the things that I always stress and I encourage parents in this room to stress is that sexual feelings, sexual attraction, sexual desires are not in and of themselves sinful unless they are contradictory to the Word of God. So, for example, if you are experiencing same-sex attraction and people struggle with that, even in our church, if you are experiencing same-sex attraction, that's an example of a sexual attraction that you may be experiencing, you may be genuinely feeling but that doesn't mean that it is right and that it is good for you to act on that. But for a young man or a young woman to fall in love with a person of the opposite sex, especially someone who's in love with the Lord, is to usher in those natural desires. 
How did God design us? The first thing we want is to be in someone's presence. This is why when you meet that girl, you want to figure out her class schedule so you can cross paths, you know. And then you want to entertain conversation. And so you begin to connect with a person emotionally. You learn their favorite soft drink or where they like to eat dinner or the movies they like to watch or their hobbies. And then once you connect with someone conversationally and emotionally, it may lead to more serious conversations. And you begin to connect with them for the Christian spiritually. For a young woman to ask, tell me about your relationship with the Lord. Or for a young man to observe this young woman serving in the children's ministry, even as a college student, is certainly something our young Christian men find very attractive. Look at this woman serving the Lord. And so you become attracted to them emotionally. You become attracted to them spiritually. And of course, you become attracted to them physically. How do you act on emotional attraction? You conversate. How do you act on spiritual attraction? You worship and serve the Lord together. Well, how do you act on physical attraction? You do what God designed you to do. You desire to be with them sexually. And the way God designed it is for us to work through all of those areas of connection till we reach a point where we are convinced this is God's provision for me, and then you put a ring on it. You covenant you covenant because you enter into a relationship that is exclusive. And so to feel these desires is a powerful thing. If you remain in the state of engagement and yet you are dealing with a strong desire to be sexually active, one of two realities will come to the surface. One, you will find yourself acting sinfully toward the person, being sexually active before marriage. Or two, you'll be in a constant state of angst and frustration that you are not married. This is not new. This is why I love my Bible. It's so relevant. People have not changed. God has not changed. Look what the Bible says, beginning in verse 36. If anyone thinks he is not behaving properly, Toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. In other words, if Paul says, if Paul is saying, if I cannot live without this woman and I am convinced she is God's will for me and I want her emotionally, spiritually, I want her socially, I want her sexually, then Paul says, have her. Just have her in God's way and in God's will. Marry her before you express yourself in those ways. He says, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin, but whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity and having his desire under control, and has determined in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. In other words, Paul's saying, if God has not convinced you that you must have her, if you are able to be with her as a friend, as a potential candidate for marriage, but you are not tempted to be with her sexually, if you are under control of yourself and you may be expressing the gift of singleness, stay where you are. Be serious about making the next step. I, I think this is fascinating. It always reminds me that if you give the world long enough and they'll be honest enough, they'll end up stumbling into God's truth. The Wall Street Journal recently ran this ad. This is a headline from the Wall Street Journal. Too risky to wed in your 20s? Not if you avoid cohabiting first. Let me tell you what the Wall Street Journal has discovered. Research shows that marrying young without ever having lived together with a partner makes for some of the lowest divorce rates. Well, la-ti-da-da. -da. 
your mother and your grandmother told you the same thing. They said, don't be shacking up. You make him marry you. You live your life right according to God's will, and it will set the tone for God's blessing in your marriage. Remember the first sermon I preached in the series, how we talked about the powerful part sex plays in marriage? Remember what I told you? Sex is not the only reason Christians are to marry, but it is one of the reasons Christians are to marry. And the world would not understand this because the world has divorced, keeping the metaphor, sex from marriage. But if we believe that marriage belongs, that sex belongs to marriage, then we must encourage young people to seriously consider all of those emotions and all of those feelings as they consider marriage. So you must consider the power of desire. And finally, you have to consider the permanence of the decision. Something happens here right after this passage in verse 38. No sooner has he finished this discussion to those who are engaged that he says, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Now, that's widows, and he's already dealt with widows. So some commentators have asked, well, what? why did he bring that back up? I'll tell you why. It's pretty easy to understand when you study the passage. He's trying to pull the young people in and say, look, this is the most permanent decision you make in your life. Other than following Christ, there is no other decision than co that comes close to the decision of who you marry or to the decision to become a parent. And even the decision to become a parent changes over life. For example, when they are first born, you are totally in charge of every decision they make. But eventually... They will be independent of your care, hopefully never separate from your love and guidance, but your relationship with them will change. If you do it right, Christian parents are not interested in being the friends of their children. I do not need my children to like me, but I want to raise them in such a way that they love and respect me so that once they are adults, I like them. I want to raise them in such a way that they can become a friend and a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ. But that means it will change. I think about that now in my relationship to my 19-year-old versus my 4-year-old. There is one that is extremely needy of a lot of things daily, and there's one who's not quite as needy, but he sure is expensive. <laughs> but he is becoming a friend. And a brother in the Lord that I give guidance to, but I don't bathe, I don't dress, I don't feed. I finance, but I don't feed. She requires everything in her day to be cared for. So even that decision, while it is permanent in that I will always permanently be their earthly father, it changes in his commitment, but not marriage. The day you say I do, biblically, you are permanently connected to that person until they leave, abandon you, and will not reconcile, or you die, or they die. Now, is this to throw cold water on young love? No. But yes. It's to ask young people to permanently consider the decision so that they might make the decision that honors the Lord the most. Warren Wearsby, you may have read some of his stuff, offered a really good list 
I want you to think about this. The next time somebody in your life falls in love and is considering marriage. Here's five questions every Christian needs to ask. Here they are. What is my gift? I don't think the church should cause people with the gift of singleness to question that. Some of the greatest Christian leaders, men and women, who've ever shared the message of Christ have been called to a life of singleness. It is a good and honorable thing to live single before the Lord. You are not incomplete. So don't consider marriage until you've come to a place where you recognize God may have called me to be single the rest of my life. If you get past question one and you say, no, 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 I, I believe with all my heart God wants me to be a husband or a wife. Second question, am I marrying a believer? Now listen, Spartanburg parents, listen to me. Most everybody your kids date are not atheists. I don't bump into a lot of those. More are moving here. There'll be more in the next generation. If you and I lived in Boston or Portland, we'd see more of that. But in the deep south, the problem is not that folks run around saying they're atheists or that Christianity's foolish or man-made. It's even worse. They will verbally acknowledge some loyalty to a Christian heritage, but they've never surrendered their life to Christ. So, so, so I think every young person should be encouraged to discern seriously before a relationship gets serious, is this person committed to Christ? They don't have to be perfect. <laughs> I'm not looking for a person without scars or struggles or regrets, but do they have a genuine relationship with Christ? And is it evident in the life they live? The proof of your salvation is not some date written in your Bible. It's transformation. Are you different because Christ is in residence in your heart. Third question, are the circumstances such that the marriage is right? Is this a right marriage? Am I free to marry this person? Is this person free to marry me? If other believers struggle, if there are red flags, if there are concerns, a young man or a young woman may very much be in love, but they should be willing to say, wait a minute, Godly men and women in my life have some serious questions about this relationship. Let me hit pause. And at worst, take a little extra time. At best, I may be saved from making one of the biggest mistakes of my life. Number four, how will my marriage affect my service for Christ? In other words, when I marry this person, does it make me more able? To serve the Lord. And finally, am I prepared to enter into this relationship for life? For the rest of my life. Everybody says they are, but am I prepared? You know, some of you are sitting in the audience this morning and you have a divorce in your past. I I'm always reminded that you more than anyone else affirm these type messages because you often find me or you email me or you message me and you say, Pastor, thank you for that word. I wish somebody had challenged me with that when I was 21, when I was 22, when I was 23 years old. 
I, I can't change that, and I'm so thankful for God's grace and his forgiveness. I'm, I'm so grateful that failed marriages don't disqualify us from loving Jesus and following him. I'm thankful that he picks up the pieces of broken families all the time. But I'm not preaching for you this morning. I'm preaching for that army of children back there. Hundreds of students. It's our job to let them say God is spoken to every area, even their engagement. And we need to give it to them in love. Not with legalism, but in love that they might have the best possible opportunity to live a life of singleness before Christ or to live a life of oneness with a man or a woman who brings glory and honor to the Lord inside of their marriage. Whether you're single, engaged, or married, engage the Lord and he'll do the rest. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this series. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you so much for the wonderful, strong marriages in this room who epitomize the gospel. Thank you for the men and women in this room who are not married. Some are single and have been called to singleness. Some had singleness cast upon them because they were divorced, abandoned, or death came all too soon. Father, I thank you that whether a person sits here as a husband, a wife, or an individual who is not married. There is no hierarchy in the gospel. That they are right where you have them. Their condition is no surprise to you. You are faithful to use them right where they are. And for the young people, especially the students in the next service who will hear this word, for the grandmother or the mother or the father who will copy the link and share this message to that young college sophomore who's head over heels in love and thinking of marrying his or her dream person. I don't pray that you would take the joy out of marriage. How could we pray that prayer? It is a gift from you. I don't pray that you would create fear and anxiety and cause people to second guess your plan for their life. But I do pray we would raise up a generation of men and women that would recognize you care much more for the marriage than you do the moment. You care much more about the principles than you do the post. And that we would help them approach this the same way you ask us to approach every other area, which is to build our life on you. I will build my life upon you. Church family, I'm going to say amen, and in conclusion of this series, we're just going to declare that in worship for just a few moments. As we do, if you and your spouse want prayer today, our prayer room is open. In your singleness or your engagement, if you'd like to talk with one of our pastors, our prayer room is open. Just for a moment, would you worship with us and in song would you declare what Paul would say to us from the chamber of history and scripture? That we would build our life upon a firm foundation, which is God's word. Father, thank you for this word and this series. 
May you strengthen our singleness and our marriage as we build our life upon you. In Jesus' name.